When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 33 of our study, uh, God's Great Rescue. This is the study of Exodus. And we are now at Mount Sinai. And this is where God gives the law. And so we're going to see a little bit of a story leading up to that. And then God's going to give the law. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in each one of these commandments. And then after the commandments, there's a whole bunch of other laws. And then there's this mess up with the golden calf and all that sort of thing. And then, and so that, that's going to take us to the rest of the end of the Exodus. Um, but, but today, Moses is at the base of Mount Sinai. And, uh, and that's where we start. So we're going we're gonna to look at Exodus chapter 19, and we'll start reading in verse 1. On the first day... Of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So they're in front of this mountain. Verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So we'll just stop there. A couple of fascinating things. So the Lord is trying to remember Moses. I brought you out of Egypt. This is what I did. I have all this power. And so I need you to do something for me. This is what I need you to do. You have seen what I've done. Now obey me fully and keep keep my covenant. Remember my covenant? This is the covenant to Abraham, Jacob, and, and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the covenant back in Genesis. Uh, you will be my God and I shall be your people. Or you shall be my people and I shall be your God. Walk blameless before me. Um, be, be my hands and feet. Uh, be a bless, be a blessing uh, and I will be a blessing to you so that you be, can be a blessing to others. That's the covenant. Uh, he's not saying obey my commandments. He's saying obey, keep my covenant. And the covenant is that you're going to be my people. And how do we know that? Well, we, we do the covenant of circumcision. Uh, and then you'll be my treasured position, all uh, possession. The whole earth is mine, but you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel is, a, is considered to be here a kingdom. Israel is. And we are part of that same kingdom, the kingdom of God. Because when Jesus came, he said, I am now the new ruler of this thing called the kingdom of God. And you are all part of my kingdom. You are treasured. Uh, and so you are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you're sp- supposed to speak to the Israelites. So Moses continues on. Uh, so Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then the Lord said to Me- Moses, 
I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. So Moses responds back to God. God comes back to Moses and said, I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. And this we're going to have this uh, this meeting between all of Israel and me in this dense cloud. How does this work? Well, verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Now this is rather peculiar. There's going to be this meeting between God and the people of Israel. God's going to be in the mountain. The people of Israel are going to be not on the mountain. They're not even to approach the mountain. If they touch the mountain, then they're going to be shot or stoned. But they're not allowed to be touched. They have to be killed from a distance. And they have to be presented very clean. They have to wash their clothes. They have to come into the presence of God at the foot of the mountain. They can't touch the mountain. And God's going to have... God's going to come to them. So we get this sense that the people of Israel need to be clean. They have to clean their clothes. They have to be clean. And if anybody becomes unclean by touching the mountain, we can't even touch that unclean person. We have to kill them uh, by a distance. Everybody's to remain clean. The whole purpose of this is that everybody remains clean. And the way you remain clean is that you don't touch the mountain. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a mountain before. I, I, I think of Pistol Hill. I don't. I mean, I don't know how big Mount Sinai. I guess I could look it up and see how tall Mount Sinai is. But Pistol Hill is. Um, you, you're you're flat, flat, flat. And then how do you know when you're actually? I mean, you know when you're on Pistol Hill because the slope is rather slope sloping. But then it comes down and it's a gradual um, flattening out until you're kind of on the approach to the hill. So at some point, somebody has to go around this mountain or at least the front of it and say, okay, this is the foot of the mountain. You can't go any farther. If you have to stay on this side, you can't go up. And probably Moses or Aaron or the elders or whatever kind of scoped out the mountain and they determined where the foot of the mountain is. Now, determining where the foot of a mountain is um, would be easy today because we would just set the definition of to what type of slope constitutes a mountain and what type of slope constitutes the approach to the mountain. And then we take out our surveying equipment and we would survey the base of the mountain and kind of figure out where that point is. And we could actually probably get that point rather, rather well defined. When I was a land surveyor years and years and years and years ago, we would sometimes have to determine the slope of a mountain or the toe of a slope or whatever. And then we would go and measure that. So a good surveyor or a good land surveyor, a good civil engineer can actually do this rather by, in, by insight and inspection. So maybe maybe Moses was a land surveyor. I don't know. I mean, it's quite possibly, I've said this many times, civil engineers are God's greatest gift to mankind. I mean, they're just, that's what they do. Uh, they, they help do things. Um, <laughs> uh, 
That's terrible, but not the greatest gift. But got, they're a very, very good gift to mankind. They've been around forever. I mean, they've been around here at least since the time of Moses. Okay. Um, don't touch the mountain. Stay on the approach to the mountain. And you have to be this way until the ram's horn sounds and is a long blast, and then you can approach the mountain. So um, this is the instructions of how the people are coming to, going to come and approach God. So we'll continue reading in verse 14. After Moses had gone down, well, after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. Um, pretty interesting that he calls them to abstain from sexual relations. But again, the whole sign of the covenant is circumcision. So that's, I mean, this is, uh, this is probably not unusual, uh, I don't think I don't think you can infer from this that sexual relations are bad, but they can be um, distracting. <laughs> Let me put it that way. And God wants a hundred percent of people's minds focused on Him, uh, leading up to this. It also could be a form of um, abstinence is a form of preparation. There's 40 days of Lent where you prepare, you know, prepare for for the coming of, you know, the the death of Jesus, the passion of Jesus. There's there's Advent, which is the preparation for Christmas. There are things that we do sometimes where we'll fast or we'll pray, or we'll spend a time in contemplation. Uh, you know, it's interesting that there he doesn't say to fast, uh, he doesn't say to pray. In this instance, it's abstain from sexual relations. Um, so. Obviously, this is also a way to kind of prepare yourself to come into the presence of God. Um, th this would be a spiritual discipline, if you would say, if you would. We'll continue reading verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So uh, Moses came down the mountain. He instructed these people on the third day. This is after this preparation, this time of abstinence, washing your clothes, getting ready to come and meet God. The people come. There's a loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. There's smoke on the mountain. There's billowing smoke as if a furnace. There's trembling. Something odd is going on here. Now, in a in a in a world where you think that a lot of these things point to natural things, you maybe there's an earthquake, maybe there's a, a lava, maybe this mountain has a little bit of lava in it. It's like a volcano and it's trumbling. There's something deep in the mountain. Um, or maybe it's none of that. Maybe God is just creating trembling mountain billowing smoke. Um, whatever it is, there's definitely something here. And the presence of God is known. And that's important because they're, God's going to tell people to do something. And so, um, so what happens? Well, let's, let's see what happens. We'll continue reading in verse 20. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai. Descended because he's in the heavens. He descends to come to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. So um, just Moses goes up to the mountain, meets with God, and he says, Okay, make sure that they don't come up to the mountain. Make sure everybody's out. This is going to be holy. Um, so Moses, Moses answers, Lord. Verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So this is the big, uh, the big meeting between God and his people. They can't come up to the mountain. They can come up to the foot of the mountain. No further. Moses can go up and down the mountain. And now God in this big trembling earthquake smoke uh, is going to start to give people uh, his words, his, his um, covenant words, his commandment words. This is, this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments that God is going to give to the people. Now, just we'll stop a little bit uh, here and just pause for a moment. Um, th- these have not necessarily, th- these Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and it's the ten of them, uh, come out of the people's mouths or come out of God's mouth to the people. And it's a, it's a vocal, audible Ten Commandments. And then taking us from Exodus 20 all the way to 31 and then 32 and then 34, um, 31, they're put on stone with the finger of God. Uh, and then Moses is going to break that stone and then God's going to do it again. And it's the Ten Commandments. And they end up in the Ark of the Covenant, which we haven't seen yet, but they end up in the Ark of the Covenant with the ephod of manna. Um, but at this point, we always think of the Ten Commandments. Of course, if you've seen the movie with Charlton Heston, you get the sense of this. But you always think of the Ten Commandments as God you know, telling Moses and then Moses bringing the the Ten Commandments to the people. But God is actually speaking these words to the people from Mount Sinai. They're hearing the voice of God. God is telling them how to live their life. And I probably have a bit of a different take on the Ten Commandments than maybe a lot of other people. I don't see the Ten Commandments as being difficult or onerous or bad. Um, I believe that the Ten Commandments were given by God to help us live our best life. That sounds crazy. I mean, because everybody looks at the Ten Commandments as things that we shouldn't do. Like God's going to yell at us and be angry at us if we don't keep the Ten Commandments. That at some level is true. But the reason why God is angry is because he knows when you break any of these Ten Commandments— you are breaking relationship either with him or you're breaking relationship with other people. And when you do that, uh, you will have a much more difficult life. The whole purpose of the Ten Commandments is to make your life easier. In Lutheran theology, we have two uses of the law. It was actually a third use of the law. Um, The first is a guide uh, or a mirror, you know, to show you how you should, you know, to reflect upon yourself and how you should live. The second one is a guardrail which is um, to pr- kind of keep you in a lane so you don't fall off the cliff. And the third is a gu- you know, is the guide, is to tell you how to live your life. So it's a mirror to reflect your own sin 
Two is a guardrail to keep you on the path. And third is a path to live. So those are the kind of the first, second, and third use of the law in Lutheran theology. But the whole idea of a guardrail, the reason why God gives us, one of the reasons why he gives us is the law, is that if we can stay within the confines of that law, we're just going to have an easier life. <laughs> it's not that difficult. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments are really, really not all that difficult to follow. And if you do that, you're going to have a easier life. You're going to, your life is going to go well with you. As a matter of fact, one of the commandments, do this and life will go well with you. When you break the Ten Commandments, yes, God's upset and angry, but he's not upset and angry because you broke the commandments. God's upset and angry because now your life is going to be miserable and you're going to have to spend some period of your life cleaning up the mess that you made because you didn't follow the Ten Commandments. And that's going to be difficult for you. It's going to be difficult for people around you. Uh, It's going to be difficult for the kingdom. It's going to be difficult all the way around. He just wants you to kind of walk. They're not difficult commandments. I know that um, the Ten Commandments are the basis for Western law. And so they are oftentimes put on the courthouses. Well, they've been taken down of courthouses. Why have they been taken down of courthouses? It's really interesting because if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's really not anything there that's all that hard to follow or like a a decent society wouldn't want to follow these. The one commandment that is probably the one that people don't like is don't commit adultery, right? That one right now, our society is like, no, that's just, you know, we can be free to do that however we want to. And the ramifications of that are crazy. But all the rest of them really are not um, all that bad. As a matter of fact, a a good society follows the Ten Commandments is probably going to be a pretty good society. I mean, it is it is not it's not overly burdensome. They're, They're pretty decent commandments. Um. And as I've said, I think that God gets angry when we don't follow follow the Ten Commandments, not because he's just a bitter, angry, judging God up there wanting to destroy us. He's like a loving father that wants us to live a decent life. And following the Ten Commandments is the easy way to do that. Um, I guess another thing I want to say about the Ten Commandments is that (laughs) even though they call the Ten Commandments... um, doesn't necessarily have 10 here. Uh, It doesn't say these are the 10 commandments. These are just the commandments that you're going to follow. And we have broken them into 10 commandments. But different denominations and different people throughout time have broken out these commandments differently. How's that? Like Jewish people break it out in one way. Catholic, Roman Catholic Church breaks it out another way. Um, reform breaks it out another way. Martin Luther has a unique way of breaking out these Ten Commandments. And I think maybe when we get to the end of that and we've gone through all the Ten Commandments, then we'll go back and we'll look at how each of the different um, denominations or different tribes of people have broken out the Ten Commandments. But they're here, and we call them the Ten Commandments, and that's what they are. You know, We'll follow probably the Lutheran because that helps me because I'm Lutheran and uh, that's the one I learned. And so that's, but if you are talking to somebody else and um, you talk about the third commandment, the fifth commandment, you know, and, and they have a different numbering for that, 
Um, maybe it's better just to say, you know, instead of the commandment number, say, well, thou shalt not steal. Everybody can kind of follow that one. Have no other gods before me. Uh, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Do not bear false witness. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, all right. Um, so do we want to get into the Ten Commandments? Do we want to do that? I think, I think it'd be fun just to start because it's going to take us all week just to get into the Ten Commandments. There's so much here. It's actually... One of the things I'm really excited about to go through Exodus is that we get to go to the Ten Commandments and really think about each one of them and why is it that this is a problem for us and, um, and so uh, if we don't follow it. And so I think we'll just go ahead. The Ten Commandments, or the, the, yeah, the commandments of God are listed in Exodus 20. They also come again later in Leviticus um, and, and Jesus picks up on the commandments and, and refines them even further in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. But these commandments are given in Exodus 20, and this is where we're going to go. And so let's just go ahead and get in Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation to those of those who hate me and showing my love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this for me is the first commandment. A uh, lot of stuff here. First of all, no other gods before me. Now, this this doesn't, it's like, that might have other, that might also be burdensome, I suppose, to people who live their life. Um, they don't want to have a god. So that that's that's one thing. But the other thing is having no other gods before me. It almost sounds kind of repressive. It almost sounds like God is, he just wants all that power and control. He's a jealous, angry God that wants power and control. But we did a sermon series on this back uh, based on a book that written by Tim Keller, who is a pastor, was a pastor in New York, um, Redeemer Presbyterian. He wrote a book called No Other Gods. And as he looked at the Ten Commandments, he also believes that these were written for our benefit. Because if we don't do this, it, we can go into the spiral of death, uh, going out of control. He saw the Ten Commandments, um, this first commandment. He saw this, you shall have no other gods before me, as being, you should put me first in your life. You should make sure that I'm number one. Don't put something of this world in that position that's number one in your life. Because we as humans have a tendency to do that. We can take anything that's good and noble and wonderful and we elevate it to where it's the most important thing in our life that if it is elevated on the pedestal like we will worship and serve this concept or this thing, it will destroy us. The great thing about God is that he'll never fail us. He'll always uh, keep us in the kingdom. He'll always redeem us. He'll always forgive us. Uh, he'll always be there for us. If you put a perfect God in the number one position and you know what that perfection is and you know that he perfectly redeems you, he loves you, he cares for you and all those sort of things and he will never fail you in the number one position. 
Anything else in this world that you put in the number one position ultimately is going to fail you because it is not, if it's a human thing, it will fail you at some point. And if your whole entire life has been dedicated to that thing and all of a sudden it fails you, it can have terrible emotional and psychological and spiritual consequences in your life. And so you should never put something on the first place in your life. What's an example of that? Um, maybe your spouse. Uh, uh, maybe none of you are as fortunate to have a, such a wonderful spouse as me, but I've got this wonderful spouse. I think pretty, very, very, very highly of her. But if I were to put her in the number one position uh, and put God below her, that would not serve me well. It would not serve her well. And, and it, would, it would lead me down to paths because as much as she leads a pretty decent life, she's not perfect. And at some point, she will fail um, herself, fail me, fail society or whatever. She'll do something wrong. And if she is the number one goddess in my life and she fails, it can throw me into a severe loop. But if God is number one and she fails, then we both can come to God and say, God, we failed. Forgive us and help us to move forward. And God will help us move forward. So you never, ever want to put anything good in the number one position. Um, and he talks about all sorts of, in the book, Tim Keller, he talks about all sorts of things that you can, that people put. Another one that people put in the number one position is their career. Um, another one thing will be kind of like society's mores. Um, uh, another one is our children. Sometimes we'll put children as our <coughs> number one uh, cause of our life that we would do anything for our children, including violating, you know, God's law, which is not good. I was in Hollywood, I think, that one of the parents of one of their children bought and paid for their kids to go to Harvard or Oxford or something like that, even like having somebody else take the test, you know, paying off people at the admissions department, you know, because once you get your kids into Harvard and they graduate from Harvard, you know, their life is gravy from that point on because anybody will hire somebody that went to Harvard, right? And so that's just like an easy path for you. And so some parents, if they don't have God kind of normalizing their life, then they'll do anything to get their kids into Harvard and they'll put their kids in the first position and they'll destroy themselves, they'll destroy society around them. And, you know, in this case of this parent or these parents, I don't know if they got prison time for it, but it's, you know, they definitely... Definitely did not, it did not go well for them. That's for sure. So, uh, and we'll, I guess we'll maybe talk a little bit more about this commandment tomorrow because there's a couple more things in here that I want to say. Um, but we are rapidly closing to the end of our time to together. So uh, we will pick up, um, I think we'll pick up again. I may read these uh, six verses again tomorrow and then we'll spend some more time on this. But uh, I think we'll go ahead and, uh, close in prayer. Gracious God, thanks for uh, this day, for the beauty of your creation. Thank you, Lord, for your Ten Commandments that uh, act as a guardrail to help us lead the life that you want us to lead. Help us be fit for your kingdom. Be with us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, thank you for joining me today, and we will get again, we will get together again tomorrow. Um, and if you didn't get a chance to go outside, go outside and take a look at the, I think it's still beautiful outside. And we'll see you tomorrow. Take care.